0: Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. You're listening to Episode 5 of Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. Doing something different for this episode, I won't be reviewing a chapter from Black Canary's 90s series. Instead, I've got two comics that feature Black Canary, Superman, and Dr. Destiny. Created by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski, Dr. Destiny first appeared in Justice League of America number 5. His first attack on the League came when he invented an anti-gravity device, an impersonated Green Lantern to infiltrate the team. He failed, of course, and was sent to prison where he spent time on a new invention, the Materiopticon, a technological gizmo that could turn dreams into reality. Dr. Destiny attacked the Justice League a couple more times, always with a variation on harnessing the power of dreams to harm his enemies in one way or another. At some point, Destiny managed to internalize the effects of the Materiopticon so that he could affect people's dreams without the machine. The Justice League had a psychiatrist plant a post-hypnotic suggestion in Destiny, but it inadvertently stole the villain's ability to dream. Without the ability to dream, Dr. Destiny wasted away, his hair fell out, and his skin shriveled to the point where he looked like a skeleton. And I'm pretty sure that science works out if you test it. If you don't ever dream, you turn to a skull. Um, The skeletal visage combined with his blue and purple costume and purple hood creates quite a visual comparison to Skeletor from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. DC Comics Presents number 30, cover dated February 1981, hit newsstands on November 11th, 1980. It sports a cover by Rich Buckler and Steve Mitchell that shows the blonde bombshell and the Man of Steel fighting off a horde of monsters commanded by the grotesque Dr. Destiny. Above the title reads, Beware of Doctor Destiny, the man whose dreams can kill. And the bad doctor himself is telling Superman and Canary, In this dimension, I am all-powerful, and you are nothing. This comic also features a backup story, Whatever Happened to the Golden Age Atom. The main story, however, is written by Jerry Conway, one of our favorites, with pencil art by Kurt Swan, inks by Vince Coletta, letters by Ben Oda, and colors by Jerry Serpe. The story, A Dream of Demons, begins with Black Canary parachuting down to the North Pole. Her destination? Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Dinah is wisely dressed for the cold weather, but her parka won't be much help when she's attacked by a polar bear on page two. This is how you know the story was written 35 years ago. I don't think polar bears are a thing anymore. Black Canary, who does not possess super strength, but has mastered the ability for using an opponent's own size and momentum against him, manages to throw the polar bear off the edge of the glacier. Only then does she notice that its paw is injured and the bear might drown in the icy water. Not to worry, because the Man of Tomorrow arrives in a swoosh of blue and red, Superman lifts the bear out of the water and dries it off with his heat vision. Then he picks up Black Canary and carries her to his arctic hideaway. Inside, Dinah is awestruck by the size and splendor of the Fortress of Solitude as she sees it for the first time. She strips out of her winter weather gear, revealing the classic Black Canary costume that we all know and love. Superman makes her a cup of coffee, or cocoa, or hot tea, something, and they sit on a couch gabbing like casual friends, who just happen to be superheroes in a mountain fortress overlooking the North Pole. Superman wants to know what made Dinah so desperate that she came all the way out here to seek his help. She begins her explanation with a summary of how she came to Earth-1 after her husband, Larry Lance, was killed. Superman, of course, knows this story because he was there during the JLA and JSA's battle with Aquarius. This is Jerry Conway giving us some exposition by recapping Larry's death from Justice League of America number 74. In the aftermath of Larry's death, Dinah felt like she had nothing to live for on Earth 2, so she came to the main DC universe and joined the Justice League. She tells Superman that for a long time after Larry's death, she had horrible nightmares. Eventually, those nightmares subsided, but lately she's been having new, even worse dreams. In the nightmares, Larry seems to be calling to her, warning her of danger. Neither Black Canary nor Superman really believe in ghosts, but Dinah thinks that Larry's essence may have been transported to a different plane of existence, citing as evidence the fact of parallel universes and phantom zones. She pleads with Superman to use his Kryptonian science to engineer some sort of device that will help her search for Larry in other dimensions. Okay, take a quick break from the story. I find it really charming and wonderful that, you know, if you're going to ask for Superman's help, the expectation is probably that it would require his superhuman abilities, his strength, speed, flight, or invulnerability. But that's not what she's there for. Dinah wants the super-scientist part of his nature. There's also a great beat where she asks if she can call him Cal, and he says he prefers Clark. They've been on the Justice League for years. They have fought together and saved the world together, but she's never called him by his first name. There's a formality there because he's still freaking Superman. Meanwhile, far from the Fortress of Solitude, Dr. Destiny sleeps in his cell at Arkham Asylum. Through days and nights of sleep and meditation, Destiny has made contact with the Dream Dimension. He hopes to take control of all the dream forces that are there. Back in Superman's lair, the Man of Steel identifies a new dimension that Dinah can pick up messages from as a result of her sonic powers, because, sure... Superman creates a dimensional portal, and he and Black Canary travel to the dream dimension. They find physics is a little wonky. There are multiple suns, planes, and land masses kind of float in the air. All the animals and inhabitants appear to be creatures of myth or fairy tale. Dinah leads them to a castle, hoping to find answers about Larry. There, at the castle, they see a ghostly apparition of her husband, who once again warns Dinah of danger but the image of Larry vanishes to be replaced by the mocking laughter of Dr. Destiny. The villain explains to Superman and Black Canary how he developed a new power to travel into dreams and manipulate them. Destiny also tells them that the dream dimension is a realm of magic, and that's a problem for Superman because he's vulnerable to magic. Destiny creates some nightmarish monsters that swarm the heroes, Superman does what he can to fight them off, and tells Black Canary to use her sonic scream. Since her sonic powers made her sensitive to the dream dimension in the first place, perhaps she can use it as a weapon against Destiny's scheme. Black Canary lets loose with her powerful canary cry, and the whole dreamy world begins to quake and crumble. Dr. Destiny curses and screams as Superman grabs Dinah and flies them back to the dimensional portal before it closes, trapping them. They escape the dream dimension just in time, but Dr. Destiny isn't so lucky. Later, Black Canary and Superman visit Arkham Asylum and learn that Destiny is in a coma, unable to escape his own dreams. As they leave, Dinah acknowledges that her dreams of Larry were just Dr. Destiny trying to manipulate her, but she's still filled with hope. She thinks there's still a chance she can be reunited with Larry, in this life or another. Okay, so far, the two Black Canary stories I've covered on this podcast that were written by Jerry Conway have been excellent. This is a very emotional story for Dinah, and that can be dangerous to present without it seeming like the woman is hysterical and vulnerable and needs a big, strong man to protect her. But that's not what happens here. First, she approaches the League with her concerns about her dreams. They blow her off, probably thinking she's just a woman still in mourning and she's clutching at straws for any sign that her husband might still be alive. How does she respond? She flies over the North Pole and parachutes down to see Superman. This shows some fierce determination, but she's not totally abandoning reason and logic. There is a legitimate grief and desperation in her request, but she doesn't come across as pathetic because the argument she puts to Superman can't be refuted. They live in a fantastic world with different dimensions and zones and universes. Is it really so difficult to believe that the spirit of her husband might survive somewhere? She's also not utterly devastated when she realizes that her visions of Larry were just Destiny's machinations. She doesn't curl up in a fetal position crying. She uses her anger in her counterattack. It fuels the scream that brings down Destiny's whole world. Instead of crushing Black Canary with the truth that her husband is really gone, she finds relief and resolve that she can move on. There's a line in the caption as Superman grabs her to escape from the crumbling dimension. Perhaps a superpower cannot compensate for the loss of a love, but in its own way, it balanced good for ill, and it gave the blonde bombshell the ability to find her will to survive. As for the art, Kurt Swan was amazing as ever. He's one of the definitive Superman artists, having drawn the character for about 30 years until The Crisis on Infinite Earths. He doesn't draw a lot of big, splashy pages, he tells the story economically, while still giving the characters real weight, real emotion, and heart. And his rendition of Dr. Destiny is classic. What an iconic, instantly evil-looking villain. All told, this is just a terrific story. You can read my earlier review of it on the blog. I'll make sure to post a link to that write-up, and some sample art. This is also as good a place as any to plug one of my favorite podcasts, the DC Comics Presents show. Every episode, Russell Bragg reviews an issue of DC Comics Presents, where Superman teams up with a different character from the DC Universe. It's a really fun show. I recommend checking it out. The first Justice League of America annual was written and edited by Len Wein, based on a plot by Paul Levitz, penciled by Rick Hoberg, inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Gene D'Angelo. It came out on May 12, 1983 for a whopping price of $1.00. Hoberg and Giordano also drew the cover, which depicts ten members of the Justice League fighting various monster forms like tentacles and smoke hands, while the spectral form of Dr. Destiny looms over them in the background. The story is broken into chapters. Chapter one is called If I Should Die Before I Wake, and opens with a fight aboard the Justice League satellite. Superman, Firestorm, The Flash, Red Tornado, and Elongated Man. All of the male leaguers, with red in their costume, are fighting monster robots called megaliths. The elongated man, also known as Ralph Dibney, feels particularly outclassed by the other heroes and the megaliths. While Superman and the others barely hold their own, Ralph fails to stop one of the robots from rupturing the hull. The explosive decompression jettisons the heroes out into the cold vacuum of space. But Ralph doesn't die, he merely wakes up. Yes, it was all a dream, a horrible dream. Ralph's wife, Sue, asks him about it, but he just brushes her off, telling her that he was dreaming of being trapped in an elevator with an insurance salesman. Then he goes to the window and has a bit of a crisis of faith. The other JLA members became heroes to save people. Ralph got his powers to be famous. He fears that he doesn't match up, that he's not worthy, and maybe he should quit the league before his inadequacy leads to somebody getting killed. Elsewhere, we see that Ralph is being spied on by Dr. Destiny, using a Materiopticon to peer into his dreams. Destiny has a lab full of patients in induced sleep and a staff of nurses tending to them. The nurses don't see Destiny in his Skeletor form. He looks like a normal guy to them. Some of the patients are allowed to dream, but some are denied the ability, and those that can't dream are turning pale and sickly like Dr. Destiny himself. Destiny says that the same inability to dream is what caused his horrific visage, and he blames the Justice League for this. The next day, Gotham Police Commissioner Gordon visits the meeting of the Justice League to ask for their help. He couldn't go to Batman because The Dark Knight is currently launching the series Batman and the Outsiders against the wishes of the Justice League of America and many fans of Jim Aparo. Gordon informs the League that Dr. Destiny has escaped from Arkham Asylum. Chapter 2 is called Dream a Deadly Dream for Me and takes place 20 minutes later when the League has broken up into smaller teams. Hawkman and Hawkgirl, the Atom, and Firestorm use one of the Hawks' crazy devices to track Dr. Destiny to Ivy University. At the psychology lab, Atom and the others question the scientists at the Sleep Research Center. Dr. Destiny, who is spying on them from monitors, takes control of the sleep patients and brings their dreams to reality as ghostly enemies. The Dream Ghosts fight the JLA members until Firestorm uses his powers to destroy the Dreamers' machines. This breaks Destiny's control, waking the Dreamers and neutralizing the Dream Ghosts. Chapter 3, called The Fine Art of Dreaming, because all these chapter titles need to have some kind of reference to the word dream or sleep, features Aquaman, Green Arrow, and Black Canary going to the Washington Square Art Fair. For some reason, Commissioner Gordon suspected that Dr. Destiny's plot was connected to some missing artists. Before going missing, the artists sculpted some demonic-looking monsters. Dr. Destiny uses his technology to create dream ghost duplicates of the sculptures. The dream monsters attack. A winged monster grabs Aquaman and lifts him up into the sky. He breaks free and drops into New York Harbor. The monster chases him into the water, where Aquaman uses his telepathic power to summon electric eels to destroy the monster. Meanwhile, back at the art fair, said no one before ever, Dinah uses her canary cry, which petrifies one of the dream monsters. Picking up on her cue, Green Arrow fires a sonic arrow to take out the last monster. Then he fires another trick arrow that blows up the sculptures, destroying the source of the dream attackers and taking all the credit for the victory for himself. Chapter 4, titled What Dreams May Come, finds Wonder Woman and the Flash searching Gotham City for the missing artists. Before Flash can comb the city with his super speed, Green Lantern arrives. This is the Jon Stewart Green Lantern, explaining that the Guardians sensed the League's need for a Green Lantern and sent the ring to John. At this point, John Stewart had been created something like 15 years earlier, but only appeared like 7 times as a reserve Green Lantern. John uses the power ring to track the delta waves used by Doctor Destiny's machine. In no time, they find the secret lab with Destiny's dream patients. John powers down the machines, draining the sleepers of their dream power, thinking that will be the end of Destiny's scheme. What they learn too late is that Doctor Destiny was plundering Wonder Woman's dreams and attacks the heroes with dream ghost versions of Doctor Light, Amazo, and the Tornado Tyrant. The Dream versions, of course, are pretty underpowered compared to the real McCoy. Jon Stewart takes out Dr. Dreamlight, Flash takes out the Dreamnado tyrant, and Wonder Woman takes out Dreamazo by catching him in her lasso of truth, forcing him to confront the truth of his non-existence. They find Dr. Destiny, but they're too late to capture him before he merges with his dream machine, which leads to... Chapter 5, Into the Dream Stream, starring Zatanna, Red Tornado, and Elongated Man. Zatanna tracks Dr. Destiny to the Dream Dimension. She takes Reddy and Ralph there with a magic spell, even though Ralph thinks they ought to wait for backup. He's still feeling self-conscious about his value to the League. The trio are attacked by Dream versions of Destiny himself. At first, Ralph feels underpowered again, but he finally cowboys up and gets in the game. After they deal with their attackers, Zatanna conjures the rest of the active League members as backup. Chapter 6, entitled All You've Gotta Do Is Dream, sees all the players featured thus far, assembled in the dream dimension. They march to the only structure they can find, the massive dream dome. Inside, they find not only Dr. Destiny, but also the imprisoned Sandman. This is the Garrett Sanford Sandman, created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Sanford had little to do with the Golden Age Sandman Wesley Dodds. He was a little closer to the vertigo manifestation of dreams, only in that the Garrett Sanford version inhabited the dream dimension and monitored people's dreams and acted as a protector of the dream realm. With a Sandman as Destiny's captive, the evil Doctor now has the powers of the dream dimension at his command. Every nightmare, every horror that has ever plagued humankind is his to command, and he throws those horrors at the Justice League. We see the heroes fighting the dreams that take the form of inhuman monsters, robots, giant tentacles, demons, and giant bugs, such as the one Black Canary fights. The Flash rushes Destiny, but gets a face full of sand. Not just any sand, though. This is the Sandman's somnolent sand, which puts the Flash to sleep instantly. Then Destiny throws the sand at Hawkman, putting the winged warrior to sleep. One by one, Firestorm, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, The Atom, Black Canary, Hawk Girl, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Red Tornado, and Zatanna fall to the sleep-inducing powers of the sand. Only Ralph Dibney is left standing. He makes a last, desperate lunge, only to be doused with the sleep sand. But his target may not have been destiny, for just as he falls to unconsciousness, his long, outstretched hand slaps a control panel. The button Ralph presses ejects the former Dream Master, Sandman, into the ether space between dreams and reality. Dr. Destiny makes no effort to retrieve the Sandman. He doesn't think that he will be a problem. He commands his dream monsters to put the Sleeping Justice League members into tubes where they will sleep without the ability to dream. This, Destiny believes, will cause their bodies such distress that the heroes will become pale, skeletal freaks just like him. Elsewhere, Sandman awakens on Earth in an alley near the last person whose dreams he was monitoring before Dr. Destiny ambushed him. This particular dreamer is well-suited to helping Sandman stop Destiny, so he races to the apartment and into the home of the only man on Earth who can help him. Dr. Destiny, monitoring Sandman from the monitors of the Dream Dome, tries to stop him by putting some dream monsters in Sandman's path. Sandman battles the monsters, knocking over a lamp, which rouses the Sleeper, who we reveal is none other than Clark Kent, better known as Superman. After Sandman sums up the previous 37 pages for Superman, they team up to take down Dr. Destiny. They charge into the Dream Dimension, where Superman takes on all of Destiny's dream monsters. Destiny laughs at Superman's futile efforts until he turns around to see the entire Justice League free of their tubes and ready to beat the sand out of him. Rather than fight, Dr. Destiny simply... faints. The epilogue is called When All the Dreaming's Done. Sandman asks how the JLA escaped from their tubes... Ralph Dibney says he had the idea to tell Green Lantern, Zatanna, and Firestorm to use their powers to weaken the structural integrity of Wonder Woman's tube. She then used her superhuman strength to break free and then free the others. Yeah, I'm sure that was all Ralph's idea. Nobody else would have thought of that. Firestorm then recommends that Sandman join the Justice League. Remember, Firestorm is the most recent inductee into the League, and he's already sponsoring potential recruits. I guess he doesn't like the newbie hazing that Hal Jordan throws at him. Alas, Sandman says he can't accept because his unique condition requires him to stay in the dream dimension for 23 hours a day. Jon Stewart has one question, which is why Sandman was so attracted to Superman's dreams that he was able to awaken right next to him. Sandman says, Superman dreamed of a better tomorrow. A world finally at peace. But more, he dreamed of those who share his dream, those superpowered beings who stand beside him to make that dream come true. In essence, Superman was dreaming about the Justice League of America. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I have weird dreams about the people I work with, too. Thus ends the first annual of the Justice League of America. It could hardly be considered a Black Canary story, she only stands out for one chapter on like three pages. If anything, this was more of a Ralph Dibney story, but it didn't necessarily showcase the elongated man more than the others. But such is the nature of Black Canary. Most of her best adventures are joint efforts. She's part of the JLA and JSA and Birds of Prey. She's integral to some of their greatest successes, but sometimes she's also just there for decoration. This story was the first time Dr. Destiny appeared after DC Comics Presents number 30, but there wasn't much continuity between them. There is no explanation for how Destiny recovered from his condition at the end of the Superman-Black Canary team-up. We could possibly infer that after Superman and Dinah left him trapped in the Dream Dimension that he was able to find the Dome and capture Sandman, but that isn't stated explicitly. The art by Hoberg and Giordano is pretty good, None of the panels really jump out as anything outstanding. The Dream Monsters are kind of generic fare, nothing especially unique or creative. There's a decent splash page of the team on page 29 that has everyone except for Superman and Elongated Man. They look good, but again, it's not the best team shot ever. The inclusion of the Kirby Sandman is a reminder that this version of the Sandman did exist, I'm not that familiar with this version, I love Wesley Dodds, so this feels weird and wrong to me. Simon and Kirby created the Sandman in 1974, but even still, there's something that feels, to me, very golden age about him. This guy doesn't even feel like Kirby's Fourth World Creations, or OMAC, or Commandy. This feels like late 40s, and it clashes with the progressiveness of the League at the time, with empowered female characters, a black member, and Firestorm. All told, I recommend checking this issue out if you can. It's good for Black Canary completists like myself. It's also good if you want some early appearances of Green Lantern Jon Stewart. It's a good Superman story. It's a good Ralph Dibney story. It's a fun little Justice League adventure. And now, Canary Correspondence, where I read your comments and give shout-outs to the people who promoted this show on social media. Twitter favorites came from at Jimfinity, Craig Lives Here, Diabolu Frank, and Oscar Alalde. Twitter retweets came from Comics History and Diabolu Frank. Craig Lives Here tweeted, Listening to Flowers and Fishnets podcasts, currently on episode two, learning lots of stuff about Black Canary's history. Cash Flag tweeted, Just found the podcast and listened to episode one yesterday, great start. Oscar Olalde tweeted of episode four, Jackpot. I'm planning a trip, and I, for one, love the idea of listening to this while on the road. Thanks, all of you guys. A few listeners left comments on the Flowers and Fishnets blog. Darren and Ruth said, Definitely enjoying the podcast so far. I've long been a fan of Aquaman and Green Arrow, and I think one of the reasons is because of their association with strong female partners who are heroes in their own rights. Of course, I'm talking about Mira and Black Canary. I'm always happy to see Black Canary, whether she's on her own title, Justice League, Birds of Prey, or Green Arrow. I'm looking forward to continuing to hear more about the character as your podcast continues. Good luck. Thank you, Darren and Ruth, for that comment. As I wrote back, I'm a huge Aquaman fan too, and I love Mira. I think the best thing Jeff Johns has done over the last five years is elevate Mira and bring her to the forefront of DC's powerful women. And I've told other people that if I could influence DC to create any comic I could imagine, it would be an all-girl team-up of Black Canary, Supergirl, Hawkgirl, and Mira, set in the pre-Crisis Bronze Age, like circa 1981. That's not a knock on Wonder Woman that I didn't include her. I love Wonder Woman, but I think the combination of those four particular women, without being in Diana's shadow, would open up a lot of crazy and fun potential adventures. Craig McDee said, "My introduction to Black Canary was in Justice League International number 11. Didn't really know much about her despite seeing her here and there in the DCU, mostly in team books where she was side by side with Green Arrow, until JLA year 1, which is where most of my knowledge of her comes from. My interest in the character didn't really start until I started watching Arrow, and while I liked Sarah, I was much more excited when Laurel, played by Katie Cassidy, finally got to suit up as the Black Canary." I think she has a long way to go, but hopefully, with Nissa Al Ghul training her now, she can start to make some real progress. Looking forward to the new Black Canary solo series. Great work on the site and the podcast. Very informative. Craig and I kind of disagree here. I have been a lot more critical of Laurel on the show Arrow. However, if she sort of becomes Nyssa's apprentice, or at least trains under her for a while, and if she develops that hard-edged elite fighter status, I think I will be much more accepting of Laurel as the new Black Canary. And I'm actually really intrigued by that potential storyline, because both Laurel and Nyssa have that commonality. They have the ghost of Sarah between them. So I am kind of fascinated by what their relationship could be. I think that would be a cool avenue. I hope the show explores that. Craig also informed me that the actor who played Ted Grant was cast in another series, and that's why his part in the show was diminished after after the winter hiatus. I didn't know that, but it makes sense. Um, and Craig brought that up because I said I was disappointed that nothing happened between Ted and Laurel. If you're going to cast Ted Grant as young and handsome and not the fatherly kind of teacher, then you have to make him a romantic interest. Otherwise, what's the point? You've just squandered a great possibility. Um, But they never went down that road, and I wondered why. Now I know why, because the actor got another job. Chris Franklin of the Supermates podcast said, "'Another great episode. I'm starting to think Von Eden was caught up in the image mania sweeping up many veteran comic artists, where they were either forced or chose to emulate the hot artists of the day to stay relevant. Look at Herb Trimpey's work of the same time. Not his best stuff. That splash page is way over the top. Dinah has always been well endowed, but she seems to be smuggling watermelons in her bustier there. I recall liking the idea of Dick Grayson as a cop.' It's been years since I read it, but Dick had no identity outside of Youthful Ward and Robin slash Nightwing. Dixon made it a part of Dick's way of infiltrating the Bloodhaven infrastructure, I believe. Again, it's been a long time since I read it, but I recall thinking it made perfect sense at the time, and also created a bit of conflict with Batman, especially since Dick was forced to carry a gun while on duty. Now the New 52 version is packing heat as a secret agent. Go figure. Yeah, Chris, I still think that Dick Grayson becoming a cop while he's moonlighting his Nightwing was dumb. Um, And as for the Grayson comic, I heard about it and thought, this is so thoroughly not for me that it's almost like I filled out a BuzzFeed quiz on what changes for my favorite characters would piss me off the most, and that's what I got. Ange of the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary wrote, I think if I was buying and reading this book, he's referring to the Black Canary Ongoing series and issue 3 in particular, If I was buying and reading this book when it came, this would unfortunately be my jump-off issue. The staged fight with overly crazy coincidences, standing under the flaming can at just the right time, the wall grab, and the thick art might be too much for me to take. Mm -hmm. You are so right that you need the right artist and the right angle to pull off that sword-poised-over-the-head image, and this one simply doesn't work. Is that a floating diamond? And boy, oh boy, talk about pulchritude. Even though the Golden Age stories are formulaic and in some senses as problematic as the modern book, always being knocked out, always having the right trinket in her choker to save the day, they are just more fun. It was simpler time, and so are allowed to be simpler. I can tolerate the missteps more. Yeah, Ange, I'm sure Black Canary number three was the jumping off point for a lot of people, as the first issue wasn't a blockbuster and the series never recovered, which is unfortunate because I think the next five issues are a lot better. That's all for now. If you enjoyed this show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can also contact me with any questions or comments. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter, at Black Fan, or at RyanDaily01. I use both with the username countdracula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show are mine alone. All music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money for this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.